When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Starbucks pistachio latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD and Will the Thrill. Can you dig that, baby? Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride is Will the Thrill. Cha-cha-cha-cha. Wow. Was that, was that just based on our subject matter today? I, I think it might have been inspired by that. <laughs> well, as you guys know from last year, if uh, you know, you're a, an old listener, that every time a host has a birthday, they get to pick whatever that month's series of subjects are, and it's my birthday month. <laughs> and so I wanted to do the Rat Pack, so I'm covering Mr. Sammy Davis Jr. today. Yes, awesome. Yes, and uh, I feel like we're doing this more and more, but our thoughts and prayers go out to everybody affected by the California wildfires right now and the storms happening in Louisiana and Texas because 2020 has no chill whatsoever. Yeah, it's like, come on, knock it off. Also, they just may have found signs of life on Venus. So if you uh, have aliens discovered in the year 2020 on your bingo card, you can go ahead and scratch that off. I think that might be a Rod Serling Twilight Zone episode. I'll have to check. <laughs> it actually is, I think, two. Yeah, they have aliens from Venus on a couple occasions. Uh, well, it's the one with the bridge that goes out. And yep. then they have Mr. Dingle the Strong. Correct. And I think there's one more where they're from Venus. But perhaps the year was of 2020. <laughs> but uh, Rod Serling was great. Yeah, but we're here to talk about Sammy Davis. Yes, and I do. I'm going to go ahead and apologize. This one was a very long one. I told Will the page count, and he just kind of looked at me and took a deep breath. So, well, when you first passed the script for me to edit, you said take out anything that you know could be trimmed, and I think I found one item. Out of the 23 pages, cutting it thereby down to 22 pages. (laughs) So I think the silver lining here is it's all very relevant stuff and stuff that I was eager to learn. As you know, I'm a fan of the Rat Pack. Yes. And uh, my brother, TJ2, Mm -hmm. uh, does apologize. But as you may or may not know, he is the editor of our newspaper. And he had a 20-page report due on the upcoming football season that was supposed to be turned in, you know, coming this, this Friday coming up. And so... Uh, he doesn't have a lot of free time to be able to 
do this episode, but he will actually be back next week to cover Mr. Dean Martin. Mm-hmm. And of course, we'll cap it off with uh, my pick for the Rat Pack, Old Blue Eyes. Well, you had to take him. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> it's oh, like... Hometown hero. It's like in your blood. You have to do the guy from New Jersey. Absolutely. Okay. So jumping right in, Mr. Sammy Davis Jr., honestly, in my humble opinion, was the best vocalist. I think he might have been, yeah. In the Rat Pack. So he was born on December 8th, 1925. 1925. I think about that for just a second. I think that makes him one of the younger Rat Pack members, doesn't it? I believe he is. He was the baby of the Rat Pack, I think. Yeah, because I know Frank is about 10 or 11 years older, and I think Dean is about the same. I, I actually think you're right. Uh, his father was the lead dancer in Will Maston's Holiday in Dixieland, which was a vaudeville troupe, which his mother, Elvira, baby, <laughs> Sanchez, was the top chorus girl. She actually remained in line until two weeks before he was born. Oh, jeez. Which is... <laughs> I don't think there was any FMLA at that point, so... Oh, I thought you were saying FML. No, 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 <laughs> FMLA, family medical leave. Oh. Yeah. I, what, what were you thinking? F my life? No, no. I mean, <laughs> I, what, what I'm saying is half funny and half true. There wasn't any kind of arrangement for that, um, especially to be what Sammy was, what they would call born out of a trunk, you know, when you're born into the, a performing family. Yeah, he, well, I mean, I, just, I okay, a couple things. Was she just not showing and had he do the high kicks and not go into labor? I have no idea. But good for her. I mean, that's kind of awesome. Uh, she boarded Sammy with some friends in Brooklyn, and she continued on the road with his father and the show. His grandmother, Rosa B. Davis, came out from Harlem to see him and wrote to his father, I never saw a dirtier child in my life. They leave Sammy alone all day, so I'm taking him with me. I'm going to go home and make a home for that child. He called her Mama, and so Mama was a housekeeper for one family for 20 years, cooking, cleaning, ironing, and raising their children and Sammy all at the same time. Whew. When he was two, his parents had a daughter, Ramona. She was sent to live with his mother's family. And six months later, they separated. His mother joined another traveling show, Connor's Hot Chocolate, and his father came home to get Sammy. Sam, this child is too young to go on the road, his grandmother said. Hell, Mama, I'm his father, and I say he goes on the road. I ain't leaving him here so Elvira can come and take him away. Besides, I want my son with me. Which... This kind of shapes his entire life, this choice that his father makes when he's like two. Yeah, and I think this was still a time when you sort of adopted whatever your parents did as a career. You know, you didn't have a career choice. We still do that. <laughs> I think it's less prevalent now, but it's in this still, era, it, I think it was a definite. Uh, well, yeah, because you grow up in your parents' shadow exactly. during this era. And like, think about it. This is pre-television. We're in the ba- the infancy of film. Really. And it's also pre-depression, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. We're very close to, to depression. Mm-hmm. We're very close to depression. Because this is, he was born in 25, two years later, 27, so the next year. And 29 tw- was the crash. 29 yeah. was the crash, so very close. When the train moved into the tunnel, he couldn't see his grandmother anymore. He stopped waving and settled back into his car seat. His father started taking off his coat and his hat. Sammy looked at him and said, where are we going, Daddy? His father put his arm around him and said, we're going into show business, son. (laughs) Their first stop was the Pythion Theater in Pittsburgh. He was backstage with his father all day. But at night, his dad left him alone to roam the house. So basically, he was backstage with his dad all day. But Mm -hmm. then at night, his father would kind of 
leave him alone, and then he probably wouldn't see him again until the next afternoon. And he's how old? Two, three. Wow. (laughs) Will Mastin, who the show was named after, came in every morning and gave him a bath in the sink and made him breakfast. So that's really sweet. One afternoon, Sammy was in the dressing room playing with makeup, trying to use the powder puffs and tubes and the pencils on his face. The way he saw his father doing it, Will actually kind of snuck in and saw him doing it. And instead of getting mad that he's like wasting the the makeup and stuff, he was like, let me show you how to do that. <laughs> and he sat Sammy in the chair and he put blackface on him. Wow. It, d- different time. Far different, yeah. But uh, he took a tube of like white clown paint and gave him the big white lips and winked and said now you look like al jolson and sammy winked back at that point will sent for the prima donna who sang sunny boy and told her take sammy on stage with you hold him in your lap and keep singing no matter what happens (laughs) as she sang he looked over her shoulder and saw will in the wings playing a game where he would roll his eyes and shake his head and so sammy would roll his eyes and shake his head right back at him the prima donna hit the high notes at the end, and Will would hold his nose. Sammy would hold his nose, but his faces weren't always as funny as the prima donna's, so he began to copy her. So when her lip trembled, his trembled, and he followed her all the way from the heaving bosom to a quivering jaw, and people were out front dying of laughter. <laughs> so when he got off, Will knelt to his height and said, Listen to that applause, Sammy. Some of it's for you. So he's, what, three, and he's killing it. Yeah. His father crouched beside him, smiling and pleased with him. You're a born mugger, son. A born mugger. (laughs) And they both hugged him. So, I mean, like, you have to imagine what it feels like to perform at that age and realize that people are cheering you on. And he's, he's genuinely funny. Well, I think it's one of those times, too, where the brain is in a stage of film where it's picking up on things faster than he is. Does that make sense? What are you saying? I guess what I'm saying is all these things with performing and the mimicking the facial expressions and doing all this is subconsciously kind of building. I mean, as a child, there's a, a surface level functionality to it. But I think as his brain is still, you know, kind of soaking all of this in, it's molding him into a performer. I fully agree. Because, I mean, m- mimicry is kind of what acting is based on. It's like, because you're not feeling those feelings. You're you're mimicking those feelings. You're giving an exterior view of what those feelings actually are. Something's funny. haha, you laugh. Something's sad. Boohoo, you cry. Like, it's just taking it to another level. So he has an understanding of art at a very early age. Yeah. By the way, I, I teach a uh, acting class if you want to, <laughs> if you want a lesson or two. It's $30 an hour. <laughs> You can reach me at rockandrollalt at <laughs> gmail.com. Okay, going back to Shameless Sammy. plug. <laughs> we're in the middle of a pandemic. Nothing is shameless this anymore. This is true. So they were playing at the Standard Theater in Philadelphia when he said, Good news, Papa. Papa was actually the nickname that his father had given to Sammy. There's an amateur dance contest the day we close. Of course, there are 16 kids that are going to be against you, all of them older than you. Do you suppose you could beat them? Yes, Sammy said. <laughs> He was only there, three. There you go. Yeah. He was only three, but he had spent hundreds of hours watching his father and Will working and imitating their kind of dance. They were doing like a flash act, 12 dancers with 15 minutes to make an impression or starve. So the, the older kid, the other kids in the contest 
were dancing foxtrot time, but when he came in, all the audience could see was a blur, just these two legs mm-hmm. flying. He got the silver cup and ten dollars. There you go. So I think that's second place. At age three. <laughs> yeah. His father took him straight over to Beck's shoe store and bought him his first pair of black pumps with taps. And that's how he got his very first pair of shoes. <laughs> I don't know why, but that story is just like, number one, he earned the shoes. Well, also, I mean, I know we said earlier, this is a time where people sort of adopted their parents' careers. But it's also the idea of a parent embracing this future for their child is is very interesting. You know, because even now people are like, your kid wants to go into showbiz, tell them to do anything else, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in light of this, I think it's very touching and it's it's very... I think indicative of the kind of people Sammy would ultimately surround him with, you know, throughout his professional career. I'm uh, looking up how much ten dollars was in 1927. Ten dollars today in today's money would actually be a hundred forty-eight dollars and thirty cents. Okay, so, so that's, was, that's a pretty like pretty good amount. Yeah, not bad for a three-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> that three-year-old has more money than I do right now. <laughs> <laughs> Mama was up waiting for us when we got home, and I put on my shoes and ran into the front room to show them to her. Mama turned on her player piano, and I did my routine, and she smiled. My, oh my, you're a real dancer now. Then she shook her head at my father and said, you buy him shoes when you don't have money for food. I always knew you were smart. <laughs> I love that line. I love it. <laughs> I mean, Sam, Sammy's like a triple threat. I mean, out of all the Rat Pack, he could do it all. And I and you're going to hear, like, you're going to hear soon some of his first album cuts. And he really is one of the best vocalists. He could have been on Broadway. I mean, he could have, you no, know. Yeah. Well, he was on Broadway. No, I, you know what I mean? But like, <laughs> I'm saying like, with his talent... He's just bound to be, like I said, a triple threat and probably the most overall talented member of the pack. It's true. A few days later, his father made the decision to have Will send him two two tickets to go back on tour. And even though it wasn't a lot of money, he said, it was better to go hungry when you're happy than eat regular when you're dead. And I'm good as dead (laughs) if I'm not in show business. And I feel like that's a a great saying. Absolutely. I mean, for anybody who is an, an actor, actress, singer, dancer musician in any form you understand the sentiment behind that a few days later a letter arrived special delivery from will so his dad was filling up their suitcase well filling up his suitcase and sammy ran and grabbed his shoes and just kind of threw them into the suitcase and his dad took them out and he looked at the shoes and he looked at sammy and he thought that he was gonna leave sammy behind and he put them back into the suitcase (laughs) And holding hands, they half-walked, half-danced toward Penn Station. <laughs> so they were going back on the road. Very few vaudeville acts in the 1930s survived the competition from the growing motion picture industry. The Maston Troupe gradually decreased until it just became a three-person act. So they even lost the uh, prima donna that Sammy was making fun of. But he actually became the star attraction by 1940. <laughs> and the act was popular enough to receive billings in larger clubs. And in that environment, Davis met other performers such as Bill Bojangle Robinson, who <laughs> you'll find out later, <laughs> that name is very familiar. Hang on to that one. He met Frank Sinatra yep. and various big band leaders. So Sammy brought along after learning to tap. They were dubbed the Will Maston Trio. 
Because of the group's lifestyle, Sammy never received a formal education, though his father did occasionally hire tutors when they were on the road. On several occasions, a truant officer would show up and they would play a game called Fool the School. <laughs> There'd be a knock at the door, but you just sat in a chair and you didn't make a sound and you just waited as long as they knocked. And that was how you won the game. <laughs> just basically wait them out? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I've done that before with other... The, mainly the the people who try to sell you magazines and candy bars. Oh yeah. Especially when we lived uh at at uh on Hollywood Way. Oh yeah, it was really bad. Because it was right on the street and but, you could just walk up I mean, the door. Here we have multiple barriers to get to that point, so Yeah. So if someone knocks on our door, we actually look at each other in confusion. Mm-hmm. It's more <laughs> alarm than anything else. Like, how did they get in here? What's happening? Unless we know them. Who are these people? Uh during their travels in the nineteen thirties, Davis not only became an accomplished dancer, but also a skilled singer and a multi-instrumentalist and a comedian and was soon the star of the show. Davis made his first appearance in film during that time, dancing in the 1933 short Rufus Jones for President, in which he sang and danced with Ethel Waters. He also did Seasons Greetings in 1933 where he played a store customer. He lived for several years in Boston South End and reminisced years later about hoofing and singing at Izzy Ort's Bar and Grill. Now, you went to school in Boston. Do you know that Bar and Grill? I don't, and that's could be due to a number of reasons. One, I didn't spend a lot of time in South Boston. Uh, it's a bit of a, a, a dodgy area now. Um, <laughs> uh, two, it could have very well closed and become something else. Um, so, probably not. <laughs> okay. Uh, in 1943, at the height of World War II... Davis's career was interrupted when he was drafted into the Army when he was just 17 years old. Now, here's the thing. It says all five foot six inches of him, but according to IMDb, he was five foot three and a half, which means... He was shorter than you? He was about my height. Wow. And 120 pounds, so I've got 30 pounds on him. (laughs) So I feel like I might have been able to take him in a fight. He was a wiry little guy. I'm not. See, okay, here's the thing. We were talking about this the other night where I was like, okay, who of the Rat Pack could you take in a fight? I feel like maybe I could have taken Dean. Could not have taken Frank. Nah, Frank was, Frank's a brawler. And Shirley MacLaine would fight dirty. <laughs> so I think Sammy was my best bet. Sammy might be the best bet. Because I got like 30 pounds on him. Because I'm not actually going to fight Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, there's a few things that would prevent that. Yep. So I don't know if he was five foot six or five foot three, but doesn't matter. He was he was the shorter of the bunch. And he said in a book about his life, he had had the bad luck of being drafted into the first integrated infantry, and it was murder. They treated him horrendously, said author Burt Boyer in American Masters. Sammy Davis Jr.'s I Gotta Be Me. During basic training in Wyoming, he was beaten, kicked, spat upon by bigoted whites in his barracks. Describing those days in his best-selling 1965 biography, Yes, I Can, Davis said his knuckles were covered with scabs, fighting racists during his first three months in the Army. Perhaps the ugliest incident occurred when a group of of white enlistees decided to teach him a lesson for being too familiar with with a white female officer. Davis said that they lured him into a remote spot on the base where they beat him and paint racial slurs on his chest and forehead. They forced him to tap dance 
and smeared more white paint over his body, only to remove a spot to demonstrate beneath the paint that he was still just as, quote, black and ugly as ever. The pain of that incident motivated him to pump even more energy into his performance at camp shows. He felt that his sheer talent could reach the haters and neutralize them, force them to recognize him as a person. He got jumped. Other GIs urinated on him. That's just... Jesus, guys. That's disgusting. Yeah, I mean, this is a case where... I know this is a very prominent thing now where, you know, with the the Black Lives Matter movement of the black community contributing to the U.S. and sort of not getting any reciprocity, you know? And this is a time when we're facing Hitler, guys. (laughs) We are facing Hitler. Come on. I, you're all they were all Americans they were all Americans yeah. fighting a commonality and the second world war had you know the Harlem Hellfighters they came out of the second world war um, you know it's like come on guys I, you know what my stance on racism is and um, these people disgust me I think my ultimate point is that they were standing up to the ultimate form of racism and yet that was still happening within the ranks you know yeah Later on in his life, on the Arsenio Hall show, Davis recounted that the other GIs painted him white and poured beer and urine on him. And he said that they needed to say, hey man, get that N-word now. Stop him. I tried physically. I got my nose broken three times. That's from your own people? Jesus. Separately on the Dick Cavett show, he told the story of the time where he defended himself and the guy said, where I come from, N-words don't go in front of white people. I turned and hit him. Cat fell to the ground. His mouth was bleeding, and he looked up and said, well, you beat me, but you still in in word. And his conclusion was, even if you win, you don't win. Wow. (sighs) Well, later on, he becomes a a massive voice. So, hold on. We're going to get to some good stuff. Um. So his experiences in the Army had a profound influence on his life, and the American culture critic Gerald Early theorized that Davis thought by becoming a success, he would be able to transcend all those humiliations. They were going to love him as an entertainer, no matter how much they hated him as a black. After the war, Davis resumed his showbiz career, and he continued to perform with Will Maston as the star of the act, and also struck out on his own, singing in nightclubs and recording records. And this is just after the Second World War? Yes. This is going to be in 1946 now. Okay, got it. Metronome Magazine named him the most outstanding new personality on the strength of his hap- his capital recording of The Way You Look Tonight. <laughs> the magazine selection as a record of that year. Davis recorded it with a deal paying him $50 aside for each recording. And so because it is literally to the shock of many who know me for how, many, how much I love Queen... I'm going to present to you my favorite song of all time. Mm. When I'm awfully low When the world is cold I will feel a glow Just thinking of you Baby just the way you look 
my foolish see that live we see his sense of humor how he's jumping in and out of you know vocal god what do you got just like just his singing voices he's clearly messing with the audience oh completely and, and, and several of those i think were direct digs at frank which is great well at this point he has met frank but i don't think that they have any kind of serious relationship yet well, I know as they got together the the three of them just went at each other all the time oh god and it was gorgeous it was so funny. But his 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 career really started taking off in 1947 when the trio opened for Mr. Frank Sinatra. Hey. Uh, during his teens, Sammy had met Frank when he helped open up for the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra and Sinatra. And the two became lifelong friends, hmm. as you will see, I'm sure, throughout all four of these episodes, that... They had this great bond that they could just bounce off each other and they would just take digs at each other. And I wish I had, <laughs> I mean, I know I have 22 pages worth, <laughs> but I wish I had more time to talk about the relationship dynamics of the Rat Pack and their live shows. I just didn't because Sammy's life was so incredibly full. And you could do just an episode on that. Yeah. 
Sinatra was like a big brother to Sammy, and he was working with Frank at the Capitol Theater in New York, and Sinatra had encouraged Sammy to sing in his own voice, not just doing, like he was in the song, kind of mimicry. His first opportunity to do just that came after Capitol Records executive Dave Dexter had heard Sammy on a radio broadcast from L.A. in 1948, and he asked a mutual friend, a big band drummer, Jesse Price, to contact Sammy, and he was soon signed to a 20-record deal. What? At $50 per side. Although singles were released were commercially unsuccessful, even resorting to releasing two singles under different pseudonyms, Charlie Green and Shorty Muggis. <laughs> the Way You Look Tonight was chosen by Metronome Magazine as their record of the year for 1949. The magazine also labeled Sammy the year's most outstanding new personality. Sammy actually had trouble finding his own voice, and many of the records featuring him adopting or overtly mimicking the vocal styles of popular singers of the day. In retrospect, Sammy considered that the arrangements and the direction of David Cavanaugh were somewhat lacking, but it's clear that further work was necessary for him to develop his own style. Following the release on Capitol, the recordings remained largely unissued until the 1990s. So some of the stuff we didn't actually get to hear until the 1990s. And so Capitol just hold, held on to the recordings for 50, almost 50 years? Yeah. That's so odd. Yeah, I mean... I wonder if there's some back contractual issue with that. I'm not sure. There, It might be. The Will Masterson Trio performed at the newly integrated Copacabana Club in New York City in 1952. And a tour with Mickey Rooney followed as did performances that caught the ear of Decca Records, who signed Davis to a recording contract in 1954. Starring Sammy Davis Jr. is the debut album by Sammy Davis, recorded in 1954. Five of the songs on Starring Sammy Davis Jr. had been previously released as singles, which were Hey There, and This Is My Beloved, Because of You, Glad to Be Unhappy, Birth of the Blues, one which Hey There had actually reached the top 20 already. And so we're going to listen to one of the songs off that album, which I find beautiful and very appropriate. Mm -hmm. It is the September song. Oh, nice. Oh, it's a Long while from May to December, but the days grow short when you reach September and the autumn weather turns the leaves to flame and I haven't got time for the way Oh, the days dwindle down to 
So I know that we're going to have probably a little bit of musical overlap in the episodes because, you know, Sammy would cover Frank, Frank would cover Sammy, Dean would jump in and do both of their songs. So there's a lot of, there's no real clear delineation of who did what first. And so if Mr. William plays September Song, because Frank also did that, or (laughs) The Way You Look Tonight, we do apologize, but... These are seminal songs by these artists, and Sammy's voice on this recording is so rich and so beautiful that I'm almost going to demand that you uh, get that record for me for my birthday (laughs) so I can hear that smooth butter voice, how it was meant to be on vinyl. I'm going to say, first of all, I I will apologize for nothing because, yes, they are the (laughs) same songs, but you can see how different the takes are. And at this time, you know, all of this was coming out of sort of being a big band leader. You know, that's how sort of how Sinatra found his footing. But everyone was doing these songs like they were staples and they're being done all over the country. Um, mm-hmm. And I am going to bring this up because it does come into play for not only uh, my episode, but yours as well. And the Rat Pack as a whole, the Copacabana Club in New York uh, was started in the 40s. And it's important to note that it was run um, by a guy named Frank Costello who had, uh, shall we say, very obvious ties to Vito Genovese. Oh, okay. I think that name comes up a little Mm -hmm. later in this story, so hold that thought. So I'm just going to plant that seed now, (laughs) because also you know me and my mafia history. It's something I enjoy. Uh, Yes. I like the the mafia of the 20s. I think that's, uh, you like the mafia of the 70s. Yes. I like the 20s and 30s. That's fair. So I think that's where we delineate on our on our scales because you like the more recent and I like the older and uh but yeah I think we I, I still haven't seen Godfather part two so I don't know what that I'm means I'm working on it I'm working on it, everybody <sighs> so she's seen the first one give it time baby <laughs> but steps I did, I did love I did love Goodfellas and Fantastic Scarface movie. is one of my favorite films of all time it's in my top 10 but it is important to note these ties because they do come into play in Sammy's life yes yeah not not too far away either Okay, so I don't know if he was living in Las Vegas or just visiting it, but he was driving from Las Vegas to a Hollywood recording session, and we've made that drive many, many times. It's about, what, four hours, four and a half hours in I traffic? Think when you do it, and I'm wondering if the route is the same. Did he take the 15, do they say? I don't think he... Or was I mean, it Route 66 at this point? I think it might... <laughs> Oh, it was Brute 66. It yeah. was, okay. Yeah. So it was a yeah. little different route, but I'd say about yeah. four hours. Maybe. He was actually on the Cajon Pass. That is where the 15 is now, yeah. Yeah, so it's what they they, they switched it, merged it, what they do with Brute 66. Uh, I think it just became other freeways. Um, well, we saw it when we went to Colorado. We, we saw yeah, there are pieces of it. Yes. Um, but I think it's now merged into 
newer updated highways. Don't get rid of Route 66. Man, they wrote songs about that. (laughs) So he was driving through the Cajon Pass on Route 66 when he came upon a strange sight. A car had stopped in front of him, apparently in preparation for turning around at Kendall Drive. And Davis, who was new to driving and was not very good at it, (laughs) plowed his new lime green Cadillac convertible into that car and his face bounced off the cone in the middle of the steering wheel. And I showed you that picture. There is a picture online, and I will try to remember to post it, of Sammy Davis Jr. actually holding the steering wheel that did this to him. This is crazy. (laughs) So just after 7 a.m. on November 19th, 1954, I had no control, Davis said. I was just there, totally consumed by it. I was unable to believe that I was really in an automobile crash. It was life. It was a life-changing moment for that 28-year-old, one that also turned San Bernardino upside down not once but twice. To piece together what happened, I have relevant portions of Will Haygood's "In Black and White: The Life of Sammy Davis," as well as coverage in the Sun, retrieved for me by my colleague Joe Blackstock. Clearly. This was a copy and paste. I don't know who Joe Blackstock is. <laughs> Whoopsie poopsie. I'm sure he is a very nice gentleman. The two women in the other car were injured but survived. Davis and his valet, Charlie Head, were transported to County Hospital, which was for the indigent. Indigent? Yeah. I, I would assume, yes, the, of lesser means, perhaps. Yeah, because the emergency personnel only saw two black men. That is some um, car. Like they were just racist. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to cuss, so if you don't want to hear a cuss word, skip about 10 seconds ahead, because that is some bullshit. Yeah, they were racist pigs. (sighs) The county hospital is full, and Davis laid on a gurney as word began to spread as to who the bloody patient was. A storm reporter went to the hospital and said, Sammy Davis Jr. suffered eye injury in SB mishap. The next day, the headlines read, and the wire services reported the accident. By 10.30 a.m., Davis had been transported to the county hospital at 4th Street and Arrowhead Avenue at the city's eye and ear surgeon. Fred Hull had been called out. Community was full, too, but the head duty nurse made room for the celebrity by discharging a couple of nobodies. This just... Who was running this joint? Not just that, but, like, two hospitals are full? What are you people in San Bernardino in 1954 doing? Yeah, what oh, the hell? no, 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 no. I'm sorry. It was 1954. They, I think they had lawn darts. Did so they? <laughs> they didn't, they didn't, uh, ground wires. And I'm, come on. We grew up in the 70s and you saw how bad we, well, we were, we were dangerous. Uh, so Davis Powell, Jeff Chandler, an actor, rushed to San Bernardino to ensure that his friends got the best care. Even out in the sticks. So did Jerry Lewis. Oh, wow. A decade before the disorderly, orderly, and Janet Lee. <laughs> Eddie stuff. Hull examined his patient and decided that Davis's left eye was so badly damaged that it would have to be removed. Davis was more concerned about his injured leg because as a dancer he needed both legs more than he needed both eyes. And Hull assured him that his leg would be fine. At 6 p.m., he went into surgery, and the aging hospital meant wheeling him outdoors to get him to the surgery area, which was over in 45 minutes. 45 minutes to take out his eye? Well, if you ever saw Kill Bill, she just, like, popped it out. Just called him a thermo. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, 
I, I know it's like recent, but how long did it take to get my appendix out? Like 11 minutes? <laughs> yeah, it did not take long. I was surprised when the doctor emerged when he did. He's like, hold on. Is she alive? We don't know. Probably. <laughs> By now, the hospital switchboard was jammed with calls from friends like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Joey Bishop, Eartha Kitt. I mean, that's that's three phone calls I'd really like to have. <laughs> that's a lineup right there. <laughs> Murderer's Row. Yeah, flowers arrived. Visitors included Tony Curtis, Ava Gardner, Jack Benny, Eddie Cantor. And Cantor is said to have slipped a Star of David around the neck of Davis. While he was recuperating in San Bernardino, Davis was visited by Cantor several times, and he spoke to him about the similarities between the Jewish and the black culture. And evidently, this sparked Davis's imagination. He began to read about Jews and Judaism, and sometime after, he actually began the process of converting. Yeah, because I don't think he was born into a religious household. He was not. Also, it was not Jewish household. On the other end of the social rung, the hospital's few black employees, many in the kitchen, regarded Davis with awe and concern. A nightclub owner friend flew in from Philadelphia, said he would pay all the hospital expenses, and told the staff not to skimp. Extra jello from Mr. Davis stat. That's a great line in any context. <laughs> I'm going to start using that in day-to-day life. I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. You know what, though? I th- I feel like I could probably do it before you because I actually enjoy jello and you do not. This is this is you, a good you point. Like, you like pudding. I like actual jello. Pudding. Aw, you're quoting Supernatural. Thanks for making me depressed again, knowing that that show is over with. (sighs) The accident, needless to say, was terrible, and Davis spent much of his hospital stay in the darkness with his head swaddled in bandages, listening to the radiator hiss and wondering if he had a future in show business. Like, that has to suck. We go back to that Twilight Zone episode, uh, Eye of the Beholder, where, Mm. you know, they show you from the inside of the wrappings. You have to think that's what he was seeing. Well, I'm thinking more of the standpoint of you think Sammy's talented now, which he is. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think he's hit like the peak of his career and he's going to do everything you're going to hear about with one freaking eye. Yeah. (laughs) So just consider that for a moment. Yeah, I have no excuse. Yeah, nothing. Okay. At his request, a hi-fi stereo was installed in his bedside courtesy of music retailer Gene Lear. Frank Sinatra swept in, grilled Hull condescendingly on his credentials and told Davis that he would be staying at the singer's Palm Spring home when he was discharged. He recovered at Frank's Palm Spring home, which, if I'm not mistaken, we've been to. Yeah, I know Sandy and John made a point to bring us there. (laughs) Yes. So we have some amazing friends in Palm Springs. Their name is Sandy and John, and we love them so, so very much. If it weren't for this pandemic, we probably would have seen them like three or four times already. Oh, yeah. But they... They love taking us to all of the spots and pointing it like, oh, this is where the black and white ball is. And here's the, the thing of Sonny Bono. And they love this restaurant. And this is the and they love telling the stories of Old Palm Springs. And so that's I, that's why I love going to Sandy and John's, because you just get like this little mini history lesson from the just the two most wonderful people on the planet. Yeah. And Frank loved Palm Springs. Yeah, oh, he did. And apparently that's where allegedly. John F. Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe would meet. That is the rumor, yeah. Allegedly. <laughs> um, so Sinatra was actually telling his younger friend, relax, you're going to be bigger than ever, Charlie, which was his nickname for Davis. Bigger than ever. 
I don't know how he gets Charlie I, I out of know, Sammy man. Davis. I, I'll see if I can look that up during my research. Well, it's like Teddy being short for Edward Kennedy. Mm, Tedward. Tedward. <laughs> that took place on or about November 27th, and David left Davis left Community Hospital wearing an eye patch with a stack of fan mail, and he promised to return sometime to help raise money for the, the facility. He said he would do it, but when he left, he said he'll forget. The hospital administrator, Virginia Henderson, told Haygood, but four years later, he actually kept his promise. A new community hospital had been built on 17th Street and Western Avenue, but new equipment was needed, and the National Orange Show Swing Auditorium was the benefit venue. Davis had performed there in 1953 before his accident as part of the Will Masterson Trio. Davis returned to the stage within weeks of an accident wearing a prosthetic eye or an eye patch was now a bigger star than ever. It was November 15, 1958, and 7,500 tickets were sold at 2 and $3, and the big spenders, that was $5. Mm-hmm. Many of the women wore fur. That would never happen now. Hull was in a tux. Henderson introduced Davis, who had bought three buses from Hollywood with an eclectic array of performers, which included James Garner, Tony Curtis, Sidney Poitier, uh, Diane Carroll, Shirley MacLaine, Zsa Gabor, Danny Thomas, and for some vaudeville flavor, an acrobat named Nita and Pepe and Judy Garland. I like how of all that Judy Garland is the afterthought. Just just throw (laughs) her in there. Well... No, because this is the 50s. Yeah, and it is Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier who were massive stars. No, that's 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 not what I'm talking about. Okay. Judy had been in the industry since she was like 16 mm-hmm. in the 30s. So she's in her 30s at this point, I believe. So just imagine what the film industry has done to her so far. Got it. Yeah. Introduced by David as the world's greatest entertainer, Garland wore a woman's tuxedo, which is awesome, <laughs> sat on a stool and egged on by Davis, performed eight songs, including Swanee, The <laughs> Bells Were Ringing, and Over the Rainbow. Henderson recalled to Haygood that Garland would not go out on stage without vodka, so the hospital administrator got a security officer to go to the liquor store. Quite reasonable. Garland had a flask handy, and she gave a performance like you would not believe. She sang one song after another... But she was higher than a tick. See, that's the kind of... I'd love to hang out with her, man. That'd be a blast. Uh, Davis accepted a gift on stage from the hospital, a scroll that illustrated the highlights of his careers, which nearly moved him to tears. He tap danced, did impressions, egged on a mock quick draw contest with Garner, and then belted the anthem-like, Let Me Sing. The event raised $20,000, and Davis and his family maintained a relationship with the hospital even past his 1990 death. Mm. As Haygood summed up that night, all this because in the wee hours of a quiet morning on a desolate roadway, a rising fast singer crashed his lime green Cadillac and lost his eye and lived to tell about it. Davis's injuries did not slow his ascent. In 1955, his first two albums starring Sammy Davis Jr. and Sammy Davis Jr.'s Sings Just for Lovers was released to both critical and commercial success, which in turn led him to performing headliners in Las Vegas and New York, as well as further appearances in film and on TV, including Anna Lucasta's 1958 with Eartha Kitt, Porgy and Bess, 1959 with Dorothy Dandridge and Sidney Poitier, and The Frank Sinatra Show, 1958. Around this time, Davis made his Broadway debut, Told You. 
Broadway. There it is. Starring in the 1956 hit musical Mr. Wonderful alongside members of his family and other legendary dancers, including one of my favorites, Cheetah Rivera. Oh, man. She is a goddess. How old is she? I. She's like ageless, though. I watched yeah. a video of her. I think it was in the 90s. I watched a video of her, and I believe it was the Kennedy Center Honors. Let's just say the Kennedy Center Honors, where she did Kiss of the Spider Woman. Mm. And she was banging. She might be a vampire. I'm just saying. Oh, she's gorgeous. I love her. So he did 400 performances of the show, Mr. Wonderful, which is for any performer, I feel like now we were talking about Nick Cordero doing like a year or, you know, six months on a show. He did 400 performances. That's insane. That's crazy. So we're going to take a quick listen to the song You Do Something to Me from Sammy Davis Jr. Sings Just for Lovers. Oh, you do something to me Something that simply mystifies me tell me why should it be you have the power to hypnotize me let me live neath your spell do do that voodoo that you do so well for you do something to me that nobody else could do something that simply mystifies me you have the power to hypnotize me let me live neath your spell you that you do so well for you do mm, something to me that nobody else See, that's more of a Sammy I know. That I'm familiar with. Yeah, and he has such a beautiful, rich, melodic tone to his voice. Like, there's just something so soothing about him. Yeah, I mean, it's great when he puts on the impressions and the voices because it's entertaining, but he's just got, it, it sounds so effortless, you know? Yeah, and you know what else is effortless? Mm -hmm. Us taking a small break to pay a couple bills with some sponsors. Yarp. And we are back. So... We just hopped out of 1955. We're going to flash forward to 1957 
when Sammy Davis got involved with Kim Novak. <laughs> There's a lot that goes on here. Lots that go on. So we're in the fall of 1957, and Kim Novak has just finished Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which is... Hang on. Okay. So we're going to flash forward to 1957. Sammy was involved with actress Kim Novak. And this was in the fall of 1957. And Kim had just finished filming Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Hmm. Which is a great film. Yes, it is. Really good film. When she met up with friends at Chicago's then hottest nightclub, Chez Paris. Sounds expensive. Or Chez Perry. <laughs> Chez Paris. Whatever. <laughs> She sat at a table near the stage, and Sammy Davis was singing on that stage and focused his attention on her. When the show was over, he confided to his friends Janet Lee and Tony Curtis that he wished to meet Novak. Just <laughs> sprinkling in some name-dropping there. Uh, Curtis told Davis that he would take care of it, telling him to attend an after-party that Curtis was hosting at his house. Curtis then approached her and invited her over. I would have killed to be just... In the 50s. I just like how Tony Curtis is your wingman. Like, that's such a <laughs> surreal situation. Yeah. Who's your wingman? Tony Doug. Cur Tony Curtis. Doug. <laughs> Doug's your wingman. Can I, can I, can I? <laughs> no, he did, he did good. I can't say anything. Look, just look where it got me. Oh, yeah. You don't regret that every day. <laughs> Moving on. Oh. <laughs> I love most you. Most people think we're cute. I mean, most people are wrong, but most people think we're cute. <laughs> the illusion continues. At the party, Davis and Novak were inseparable, spending the entire evening together. How salacious. It was electric. However, they weren't the only ones to notice this intense connection. It's believed the fellow guest at Curtis's party called a popular gossip column to inform them of Novak and Davis's chemistry. It's pretty much like now. Minus the Twitter and the Instagram. It's, it's the same stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was less accessible back then, but it was actually worse, I think. Yeah. Because this could actually get you killed. As we will soon see, won't we? Or blacklisted yeah. mm -hmm. or blackballed. Like, there were, there were definitely really bad repercussions for some of this stuff. Oh, for sure. The next day, in a small section of a gossip column appeared, which top female... K.N. is seriously dating what big name entertainer S.D. The news spread as gossip usually does and the night that Davis and Novak were seen together at the party would be the last time that is by the public. Worried about the impact of the rumor Davis phoned Novak to apologize for any stress or professional retaliation their brief meeting called her. Novak didn't mind at all. In fact in Davis's autobiography Sammy she responded by saying the studio doesn't own me and she asked him over for dinner. The small bit of gossip really struck a chord with the notoriously loathed Columbia Pictures studio boss, Harry Kahn. Kahn, who felt like he invested enormous time and money into Novak's career, completely took control over her, or at least he tried to. And that was sort of the way the studio system was, wasn't it? Like, these places owned you if you signed that contract. Oh, yeah. They, would, they had fixers, which was good if you messed up, but then they'd also arrange marriages mm -hmm. and... You know, some of them had mob ties, etc. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a dirty business back then. It might be dirty now. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not important enough to know that. But you know, back then, it was. There's a great podcast if you're interested. 
called You Must Remember This, and it's uh, hosted by a woman named Karina Longworth, who is married to Ryan Johnson. I only say that because not that her marriage defines her, but she does have a little bit of an inside track, I feel, on the history of Hollywood. She also Mm. did a book called Hollywood Frame by Frame, which was an incredible book. But she delves into this. There's another podcast called The Dark Side Of, which actually highlights Judy Garland's youth. So if you're really interested in kind of like that salacious part of Hollywood, there are some great podcasts out there that you can check out, and you should. So at the time... Novak was actually Hollywood's number one draw at the box office. She was one of the hottest female actresses, thanks to Khan. Mm-hmm. Since discovering her and creating an image that she became known for, he regarded Novak as his property, which sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when he caught wind of Novak and Davis's fling, he forbade her from seeing him with no compromise. And by all accounts, anyone working in Hollywood feared Khan and knew the damage that he was actually capable of causing, which is so scary. It's frightening. Not only had Khan admired Italy's Prime Minister Benito Mussolini, which is probably not the person you want to look up to, I'm thinking, but he was reportedly known to have close ties with the Chicago mob, Johnny Rosselli, to be specific. Do you know who Rosselli? He's connected to Giancana, right? I believe. I think we get to that. Okay. He was an influential mob- mobster who had orchestrated the mob's dominion within Hollywood and Las Vegas, supposedly even purchasing matching ruby friendship rings for him and Khan. Oh, wow. Yeah. And although he demanded that Novak end his relationship, she didn't. He even arranged bodyguards to wait in front of Novak's home to ensure that he wouldn't show up. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, this guy's got mob ties. He's got money. He's got... Hollywood. He's Columbia was huge back then. Mm-hmm. Think about the sway that he held over her. How scary is that? Basically, like you can't love this person. They controlled every aspect of your life, basically. Yeah, that's. Sc- I hate that. I hate. I would hate that thought. Through the remainder of 1957, the couple continued to hide their relationship. Arthur Silver Jr. was one of Davis's best friends, and he was the only person to actually see the relationship budding between Novak and Davis, and so. Khan actually called the racketeer, John Rosselli, who was told to inform Davis that he must stop seeing Novak. To try to scare Davis, Rosselli had him kidnapped for a few hours. Kidnapped for a few hours. Just like a test run? I Davis was threatened with the loss of the other eye or a broken leg if he didn't marry a black woman within two days. Davis sought the, the protection of the Chicago monster San the, the Chicago mobster San Giancana, who said he could protect him in Chicago and Las Vegas, but not in California. So that answers your question. Okay. They, those weren't technically connected. Got it. Okay. In Silver's autobiography, Sammy Davis Jr. and Me and My Shadow, he recalls that many times he drove Davis and Novak to a private Malibu beach house, which he would rent to just so the couple could have some privacy. According to Silver, he would chauffeur Davis to the beach house and Davis would cover himself with blankets or hide on the floor of the car, evading any possibility of being exposed. Later that year in December, Novak flew to Chicago to be with her family for the holidays. Davis stayed in Las Vegas, where he was scheduled to perform at the Sands Hotel, which was run by he and uh, his closest friend, Frank Sinatra. Even though Frank didn't approve, Davis found a replacement for his scheduled performance and hopped on the next flight to Chicago, where he could be protected. Yeah, because he's got Sam at his back. Yeah. It wasn't long after Davis arrived that the gossip hounds were all over it again. Chicago Sun-Times journalist, I have no, I'm not even going to attempt this last name, 
received word from the the court clerk that the couple filled out a marriage application, and without hesitation, he published the news, Ooh. which is unethical. Yeah, that's bad. Khan at the time was in New York when he was informed of Davis and Novak's rumored engagement in the Windy City, and to say that he was upset would be a bit of an understatement. Um, he actually suffered a heart attack on his flight back to the West Coast. Wow. He had a heart attack on his way back. Could you just imagine being that horrible that someone falling in love caused you to have a heart attack? Yeah, that's uh, it's some skewed priorities there. Don't at me, kids. Yeah. Okay, so while they were going to great lengths to protect the details of their relationship, Cohen was grasping. That is Cohen, right? Yeah, you're talking about Mickey Cohen, right? No. Con? Okay, so I've just been informed <laughs> because I was... I was thinking of the singer, Mark Kahn. I've been saying Kahn, but uh, Will says that it's... That's Cohen. That's, that's Kahn. Kahn. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Cohn? I'm not sure. Cohn? Yeah, I thought it was Cohn, but I could be wrong. Con, I'm gonna, You know what? I'm going to keep saying Kahn. Okay. If we get corrected, we get corrected. So, sorry. You know, I, I don't understand names that are four letters. Like John or Bob. So anyway, we're just going to keep calling this guy Khan because a Cohen comes in. So, That's fair. you know, sorry. So Khan actually called in a favor from one of his mobster friends in a final attempt to eliminate the couple's affair altogether. Mickey Cohen, the boss of the Cohen crime family. So you see why I'm just going to call this guy Khan. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry if that drives you nuts. I apologize. This part's almost over with. Uh, he contacted... His father, Sammy Davis Jr.'s father, Sr., to inform him of a contract hit on his son. That he put a hit out on Sammy Davis Jr. And this is when he said, you have two days to marry a, a black woman. Or he'll take out his other eye or break both of his legs or do everything. So he called his son at the Sands Hotel and told him about the hit. Terrified and without any way to protect himself from the mafia... He didn't have any other choice but then to find a bride. In two days. So he got in touch with a singer who worked at the Silver Slipper Club in Las Vegas, Lorraine White, whom he briefly dated in the past. And he offered her $25,000 to marry him as an act and be his wife for a year. And after the year, he would dissolve the marriage and they could go their separate ways. White agreed to his proposal and the contract hit was dropped. That's the very definition of indecent proposal, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, at least Lorray got something out. Sounds like she was okay with it, yeah. So on January 10th, 1958, Davis and White were married in the Emerald Room at the Sands Hotel, only to be divorced six months and $25,000 later. And with all the turmoil and threats to both lives and careers, Khan's plan to dissolve the duo's relationship seemed to work. Novak eventually succumbed to his demands, and she actually dropped Sammy for seemingly the rest of his life. Got it. Which sucks. Yeah, what what could have been, right? Yeah, so Davis, let's talk about White for just a minute. She was 23, divorced twice, and had a six-year-old child. He paid her a lump sum, $10,000 or $25,000, to engage in marriage on the condition that it would be dissolved before the end of the year, and Davis became inebriated at the wedding and attempted to strangle White en route to the wedding suite. Charming. This sounds like a healthy wedding. Yeah. This, is a great a, start. this is a great marriage. Checking on him later... Uh, Silver found Davis with a gun to his head, despairingly said to Silver, why won't they let me live my life? The couple never lived together and commenced divorce proceedings in September 1958. The divorce was granted in April of 1959. 
So that's, what, six months? That is really sad, though, that it came to that. Yeah, it really is. It. I, I hate that that a color barrier, because he was so incredibly racist, stopped two people from being in love and having a life together. Yeah. I hate that. It's I horrible. hate that to my core. And it's scary that someone that isn't your parent has that much control over your life. It's even scary if your parent has that much control over your life. Yeah. I mean, well, at least they have a tie to you. Yeah, that's you know? that's like, true, like, yeah. They're your parents. They get, they brought you into this world. They can take you out. <laughs> but to think a studio head has that much power over someone's love life, that that's scary to think. <laughs> but the following month, Cohen suffered another heart attack, which ended his life. Okay, so then he's dead. Okay. He's dead. Following his death, Novak's once thriving career dissolved. Yeah. By the early 60s, she was retired from Hollywood and pursuing a simpler life. <sighs> And then Porgy and Bess came out. A 1959 album by Sammy Davis Jr. of selections from George Gershwin's opera Porgy and Bess starring Carmen McRae. And Davis is accompanied by an orchestra conducted by Buddy Bergman and Morty Stevenson, sometimes supported by the Bill Thompson Singers. McRae is featured on three of the ten songs, Summertime, My Man's Gone Now, and the only duet, I Loves You, Porgy. All three backed by an orchestra directed by Jack Police. I think that's how you say his name. If it's not, I'm sorry. And I will say that he and uh, Carmen McRae had done an album prior in 1957 called Boy Meets Girl, Sammy Davis Jr. and Carmen McRae on Decca. They actually did a version of Baby It's Cold Outside, and it's still a creepy song. Oh, that's one you played earlier, right? Uh, I was playing it in the kitchen. That's right. So we're going to play a little bit from Porgy and Bess, and this is I Loves You, Porgy which is the only duet on the album. You ain't got nothing to be afraid of. I ain't gonna try to keep no woman that don't want to stay. If he wants to go to Crown, well, that's for you to say. I want to stay here, but I ain't worthy. You are too decent to understand. For when I see him, he hypnotizes. When he takes hold of me with his hot hand. Someday I know he's coming back to call me He's gonna handle me and hold me so It's gonna be like dying foggy deep inside me But if there weren't no crown, Bess, if there was just only you and Porgy, what then? I love you, Porgy. Don't let him take me. Don't let him handle me and 
drive me mad If you can keep me I want to stay here With you forever And I'd be glad There, there, Bess You don't need to be afraid No more You picked up happiness And laid your worries down You're gonna live easy You're gonna live high You're gonna outshine Every woman in this town And remember comes that's my business Bess. I love you Bobby. what you think I is anyway don't let, let another him take fella me. steal my woman don't let him have if me. you wants to stay with Hoggy you won't stay with, with his hot hand you got a home now honey If you can keep so no more crying, can't you understand? I want to stay here. You're gonna go about your business singing with you forever. Cause you got foggy. I mean, it's a, it was a Broadway show, so of yeah, course I love it. And she has got such a gorgeous voice. And the movie starred Sidney Poitier. Yeah, so I got to work with him on one of his the last films. I actually think it was his last film. It was in 2001, and it was called The Last Brickmaker in America, and I was the stand-in for the little boy in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and if you watch it, for some reason, they had me like digging a hole. Because the kid had to leave, and so they shot me from the neck down. That's funny. <laughs> they didn't do anything to change me. <laughs> so if you look, that's actually me digging the hole in that movie. <laughs> now I have to look for this. I've never seen this. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> we'll do it for Sidney Poitier. Don't do that, it for that's me. Fair. That's fair. Okay, so as you can see, that was piled to the sky with the strings and harps and chords and massive orchestration. But Tim Sendra on All Music, which is a website that I go to frequently for this this uh, podcast, credits Sammy and Carmen for holding up their end of the deal. Don't quite know what that means, but uh, it what turned out was beautiful orchestration and gorgeous singing. So yeah, I'd say they held up their end of the bargain. They showed up and sang great. There you go. The decision for Sammy to leave Decca Records at the end of 1960 was taken solely on the grounds that Frank was leaving Capitol create his own label. That's right. Oh, that's going to come into play. In yes. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of crossover over for the sure. next couple of weeks. But uh, Frank's new label, Reprise Records, signed not only Sammy, but similar artists such as Dean Martin, who will be... Link up there. The next episode, Bing Crosby, which we've done an episode on before, Rosemary Clooney... And Duke Ellington. And Sammy signed his contract on the 1st of September. So, again, appropriate that this is the <laughs> month. Lots of things happened in September for Sammy. Oh, no, for sure. Uh, on the 1st of September, 1960, with Frank looking out for the artist's rights, the standard reprise contract 
allowed for the rights to record masters to be reverted back to the artist after a short window, but he actually signed the rights away in search for more of a more short-term cash flow. So basically it was saying like, okay, either you can, the rights will go back to you after a while and you'll make more money in the long term or, you know, right now you can sell the rights and just get short-term cash. And this was a contractual thing or sort of a gentleman's agreement between Frank and Sammy? I think it was a legitimate signed contract. Got it, okay. Subsequent contracts with Reprise were signed on the 1st of July, 1962, and the 23rd of September. Again, September, 1963. He and the others of the... So, this year, which is 1962, is a, a year that is important. 1962. So, does the, the date August 5th, 1962 ring a bell? It does not. Mm, totally should. Because that okay. is the day that Marilyn Monroe passed away. Oh. And if, you'll, if you know anything about Frank Sinatra who he was friends with and friends of friends and, you know, is a very Hollywood inbred. Between Frank Dean and Sammy, you could connect to almost anybody. And they were actually banned from her funeral by Joe DiMaggio. Oh, wow. So <laughs> Frank, Sammy, Dean, all the other members of the Rat Pack banned from her funeral. Sounds like a bit much. <sighs> And I think he was her ex-husband at the time, too, right? But yeah, he, she married him and then Miller. I don't think so. I'm trying to remember the, the thing. I'm trying to remember Smash. Well, she was married to both. Miller and... I, oh, I know she was married yeah. to both. I'm just trying to remember which order it was in. First, so uh, so just to wrap that up, yeah, it's a little crazy. Either way, Joe DiMaggio was her ex-husband. But the thing is, he loved her well past her death. I think he loved her for the rest of his life. Mm. He paid for her funeral... You know, he took care of her. I mean, we will be doing, uh, moreover, I will be doing an episode of Ma on Marilyn Monroe. Okay. That's me. That's not, that's all mine. That is yours. You and my brother cannot take this away from me. I wouldn't try to. <laughs> In his last few years at Reprise, Davis chose Marty Pache as a frequent collaborator, doubtless impressed by Pache's work with Davis's longtime friend Mel Torme on Bethlehem and Verb. It was his West Coast jazz-style approach that Sammy saw making some of the best recordings of his entire career during this time, most notably on the side of Sammy's debut album on Reprise, The Wham of Sam. Hmm. He also arranged Sammy's hit single, What Kind of Fool Am I?, which was on the Billboard charts for 15 weeks in 1962 and was Grammy-nominated for Record of the Year. Oof. Other highlights of the period of 1961 to 1964 include the standout albums of Broadway Showstoppers, a collaboration with Sam Butera and The Witness, a live album recorded at the Coconut Grove. And am I wrong in thinking? No. Is that the one that caught fire? I, th I was going to say, isn't that the one that caught fire? In Miami, right? I feel like yeah. that's, yeah. I don't know if most of you guys know it, but I'm a huge disaster fan. Can I say fan? No. It's it, it's a great enthusiast. Yes, it's of interest to me, and I think the Coconut Grove did catch on fire. I believe so. But there was a live album recorded there, an album of songs composed by Mel Torme, and finally an unofficial album with Count Basie and his orchestra, and the cast recording for his second Broadway musical, Golden Boy. With the musical finished, Davis returns to the Sands Hotel in May of 1966. What followed over the next three months were major highlights from his recording career. The first was a live double LP release of Sammy's Sands performances titled That's All, which serves as a time capsule of Sammy's mid-1960s prowess. 
The second was another live album from The Sands, The Sounds of 66, which is a recording of an early morning show put on especially for performers of other hotels on the Strip, with Sammy accompanied by Buddy Rich on drums and his big band. Both Buddy and Sammy are in swinging form. Finally, in June and August, Davis recorded an album which most consider to be the apogee of his recording career. Sammy Davis Jr. sings, Lorindo Almeida plays. Sammy sings with the sole accompaniment of Almeida, a Brazilian classic guitarist, and the result is proof that, in the words of jazz critic Will Friedwall, apart from everything else he could do, when all is said and done, he was really a great singer. Hmm. And... That is where we are going to leave off on today's episode. We will be picking up next week with part two of Sammy Davis Jr. Because you know what? It's my birthday and I can do whatever I want. Yep. <laughs> yes, yes, you can. So if you think that we're doing an amazing job and you'd like to give us money, please visit us at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Facebook, Rock and Roll Heaven Pod, still not saying our website. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. Check out all the other Pantheon podcasts at rockandrollarchaeology.com. Have a fantastic week, guys. We will see you next time. We're actually going to close out with Sammy Davis Jr., Loreno Almeida, doing a song called Two Different Worlds. You guys, thank you so much for checking us out. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Two different worlds We live in two different worlds For we've been told That a love like ours Could never be So far apart They say we're so far apart And that we haven't the right To change our destiny Well, when will they learn That a heart doesn't Nothing matters if I am yours And you are mine Two different worlds We live in two different worlds But we will show them as we walk together in the sun That our two different worlds
different worlds We live in two different worlds But we will show them as we walk Together in the sun That are two different worlds It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 